All right. Our very first internal bottle podcast where we will get to know each other. The goal of this conversation is just to share stories, chat about backgrounds, learn more about what, what makes them excited to get out of bed every day, um, et cetera. So let's just kick it off. Matt, you are from and live in South Africa. Would be curious to hear a very high level overview of your life, what it looks like, where you live, et cetera. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Will. I was born in 1993 in a small town called Bluefontein in, in the middle of South Africa. It's not a particularly interesting town to, to grow up in and not a whole much was going on there. So went to school there. I went to a all boys school called uh, St. Andrews. Again, nothing eventful being, being Bloemfontein. So not much uh, interesting there. I did do a little bit of traveling when I was quite young because my father moved around. So we were in the UK for a while, lived in, lived in Weybridge in Surrey, where I went to school there, met a couple of my mates that I still know today. And, uh, then after three years of staying in the UK, obviously moved back to South Africa, finished my schooling, went on to college, which is not a very common thing in, in South Africa. We usually go to universities. I went to a technical college, studied to get a Microsoft certified professional developer certification, which I don't use any Microsoft products now in my development career, which is interesting. Yeah. And then basically started out my career working for a point of sale company when I was 19 and yeah, that progressed through the years. I started contracting for various sort of corporate houses and startups alike, few successful, few, a few failures as well along the way as is startup life. And then eventually found bottle, which is where I'm at now. And I can definitely safely say I have never been happier in a professional or personal capacity. I'd love the bottle shout out at the end. Where are you now? Yeah, so I'm currently staying in Strand. For those not local to SA, I'll, I'll give you a moment to try and pronounce that. It may take a while, but directly translated, quite interesting fact, it's uh, directly translated. It means basically milk bush beach, which is quite interesting because the area is surrounded by a local species of succulent, which is a milk bush. And so that's why it's called so quite interesting. I live on a golf estate in Malkostrand with wild springbok running around, which is always amazing to see. And there's like a restaurant on campus, if I can put it like that. So a very nice laid back environment. I don't tend to sort of move around when I'm working. I've got quite a nice setup here. So yeah, totally happy. To rewind for a moment, what's the difference in college and university? Well, university will usually end up in a degree if you pass. So a bachelor's degree and then an honors degree and then a master's degree and then probably a doctorate. College is far more technical rather than theory-based. Basically, instead of spending three years in university, you'd spend one year in college doing a, a specialization such as software engineering or whatever the case might be. And then they equip you in a very quick manner to join the workforce in that way. So it's almost like a sort of code bootcamp in a way, but I think a little bit more hands-on than that. And I just, I took IT at school, so I was already coding a little bit, nothing super interesting. 
Uh, I'm not sure if anyone remembers those old ADO database connections with Delphi and that kind of stuff. So nothing super interesting, but I was already coding and, and I knew, well, I knew immediately it's what I wanted to do. So I just wanted to get up and start building stuff in the real world. I don't like being in a position where you're building stuff for no reason, just to pass a test or an exam or whatever the case might be. I wanted to literally get battle tested as, as soon as possible. Did you have family or anything that had been programmers or how did you first start writing any code to know that you wanted to uh, go into IT and development? What was really interesting is my uncle, he was one of the first people in the world to develop speech recognition software. He was a hyper-intelligent developer and so it actually started not from development, oddly enough, I'd gotten a Motorola V360B flip phone and I was begging my mom to buy one of the games that, that I'd seen advertised in little magazines and stuff that, that come with a phone. And, uh, my uncle sat me down and he's like, now hold on, let me just quickly show you this. And this is in the, in the very, very old days where you could download entire games as like bin stub packages. And he just plugged my phone in and transferred like 50 games within the space mm. of half an hour. And mm. that just blew my mind. And I was like, how did he do that? How did he even have access to those things and, and all of that stuff? As it turns out, weirdly enough, it was all above board because all the games he had worked on as a consultant for their parent company, and they were allowed to share those modern day APKs with their family. So that was quite interesting just to see that. And then eventually found IT at school from grade 10, wrote my first little hello world program, as I'm sure 99% of all, all other developers do. And best feeling was, in the world. Yeah. I was like, I've just made it do a thing, right? <laughs> this doesn't exist anywhere else. Only on, on my machine, I wrote this, it did a thing. It did exactly what I told it to do. And it blew my mind. So I was like, this is where I need to live my life. It's so your uncle was, or is in South Africa. Is he, is he still? He was in Cape Town actually. He's unfortunately since passed, but yeah, very fun memories from him showing me all of these things. And yeah, I, I, I would have loved to, to sit with him and, and talk programming, but I think he would have made me feel, made me feel small. Right. And I, I don't know. First, first voice recognition software is is insane. I remember visiting him and, and him staying up the whole night saying the same phrase over and over again to try and get his algorithm to pick up his voice. That was just phenomenal. But yeah, that's how it all started. Very cool. From a personal side too, you're married. Tell me a little bit about that. How did you guys meet? What was the courtship? How long have you been married? Yeah, this is quite an interesting story. So within Bloemfontein, there is a club called the Mystic Boer which directly translates to, I suppose, the mysterious farmer, which is a little bit, it's not a, it's not a super cool club name, but that's, that's where all the young guys and girls used to, used to hang out. And I walked out of the bar, it must've been two o'clock in the morning, not as, not quite as sober as the day I was born. And I saw her out of the crowd of people and I walked up to her and I said, you are really pretty. Can I have your number? And her friend who was standing next to her actually thought I was talking to her. So she was like, sure. So I was like, okay, this is weird, but I'm going to take your number anyway. And then two days down the line, I said, look, I don't mean to be offensive, but I was actually interested in your friend. 
So can you send me her number? <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was, I suppose, unconventional, but it was great. And I think that we were dating for three months and, uh, and we moved in together immediately, which was obviously a strong move. And, and I'm sure some parents had some words, but yeah, it all turned out, it all turned out amazing. And there was a, a total of four people at our wedding, oh, which wow. is also another interesting story because we got married in our lounge because I had made a promise to her that before I moved to Cape Town, that I would marry her and the move to Cape Town came so quick and I'm not one to flake on my promises. So I was like, let's get married. <laughs> so there we were four four family members and a priest standing in my lounge, getting married. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of questions here. Who, first of all, who were the four people who were so lucky to be there? It was my brother and his wife and Serena's sister and Serena's mother. Got it. And we got a rewind to the friend. So what did the friend? <laughs> yeah, she actually took it quite well. She, I'm not really sure if she knew and she just took a chance, <laughs> but what actually happened from there is she ended up dating one of my friends, which maybe we had some kind of exchange. I'm not really sure, but I feel like I was the, the one better for it. So super happy about that. And then, so you get her number, presumably you call her and text her. There's gotta be a story there. What'd you do? What was the proposition? Are we going to go to dinner? Hi, do you remember me? That, yeah. So it was definitely a shot in the dark. So that night when I'd met her, so after I got the number and everything of her friend, she asked me, she being my wife now saying, Hey, I've got some vodka in the car. Would you be interested? And I was like, yes, <laughs> I'd be very interested. So there we sat on the street outside of this club, just talking and her friend wasn't too much involved in that at all. It was just like Serena and I had hit it off immediately. So. When I shot my shot, when I said, look, I was actually asking for your friend's number. Would you mind just giving it to me? She was like, you know what? Yeah, sure. Here's a number. And that's how the conversation started. It was like, Hey, it's Matt from mystic. Do you remember me? And she was like, I, I totally remember you. What's up? And I was like, yes, it's happening. It's happening. So I was, yeah, it was, it was definitely a shot in the dark. Oh yeah. The outcome was, was totally happy. Awesome. So then you guys moved to Cape town. How long ago was that? When did you get married? We yeah, don't mess up this answer. Got married as I'm furiously typing in a calendar. I think it was 20, late 2017, if I'm not mistaken. That was a very crazy year though, because that was, so within the space of one week, we had to get married, pack up our house, move a thousand kilometers away and start a new job. So that was such a wild week for us mm. that I wouldn't be surprised if Serena couldn't remember the exact date either. <laughs> Very cool. Amidst all of it, what, so you obviously programming and that's your career, but what do you do outside of the Mac products on the deck? I'm going to have to give a boring answer to this because coding is also my hobby. And unfortunately, fortunately and unfortunately. So. On my downtime, I would maybe be watching some other 20 year old series like that Simony show or something like that, or I would be prototyping something like 
trying to give Elixir a go with Phoenix, just to see how that sort of couples together or try AWS's DynamoDB kind of stuff, just to see what, what that's about. But it's more on a prototyping rather than building some kind of cool idea out that I have. It's more, I want to see how this works. Do you have any side projects that you love or have loved particularly in the past? Something that was just so cool that you made? Yeah. So I worked with my cousin who owns a auction house to do, they, they had this issue of like kind of stock taking and how do you track the stock? They deal primarily in cars. So I built this system and it, I'll, I'll tell you the part that I really enjoyed right at the end, which, which is strange, but I'm, I'm sure you'll get it. So I built out this whole system where they could detail all of the stuff from the cars, what bank they got it from and all of that kind of stuff. There's this roster where they would add these cars to the auction coming up and then the auctioneer would just have to look at his phone, open the auction, and then you'd see the products and, and all of that kind of stuff. It worked really well. Everyone was super stoked. But with that, there's this little label printer, <laughs> a brother label printer that printed a QR code with their logo on it that you can just stick on the tire of the car, anywhere like non-permanent. And then when the car would come in, the auctioneer can scan it as well to verify it's the car that he's, you know, attempting to auction off. But also customers without having the app on their phone could scan the QR code and it can give them more details about the car that they were interested in. And I thought that was like such a cool idea. But the, the thing I loved most was that label printer. It was really awesome to be able to press a button that I coded and the SDKs were in Chinese. So that was a super interesting Google wow. Translate exercise. <laughs> and for that to actually print a thing, have a physical effect on your immediate vicinity. That was like, I love that. I thought that was super cool. That is awesome. All right. We're going to now take an existential dive. What is something or not a what, what's one thing that has changed a lot in your lifetime where you look back on your early childhood and think, wow. Things are a lot different now. That is a very interesting question. For me, it would be, I suppose, not a, not a, a material thing, but more a psychological thing of, I used to enjoy when I was younger, people listening to me and for me to do the talking. So I, I would love to talk. I, I could talk for ages about anything. And I think that's pivoted quite drastically because I feel like mm. I'm far more of a listener. Ironically, doing a podcast where I have to, <laughs> I'm just talking a lot, but nowadays I find that I really just prefer to listen to people. I think people are incredibly interesting and everyone is, is living their own lives in, in their own perception and their own narratives. And I find I. I live off of that. I, I want to listen to you. Tell me what you did. Tell me what you think. Tell me what you've been up to. I find that's changed a lot through my life. I'm far more of a listener than a speaker now. Was there a time that changed or like a, a moment where you recognized that or, or a reason for the shift? There was actually. I was uh, out with a bunch of friends and it was just a bunch of guy friends and gets loud and rowdy and everyone's trying to talk over each other. And I thought to myself, I'm just going to take a step back. I'm just going to sit back in my seat and, and listen to what some of these people have to say. Hmm. And I found 
I found almost freedom in that. There was no sense of anxiety of I needed to get out what I wanted to say, because I feel like nowadays, sometimes people are only listening, just waiting for their turn to talk, which I think is eroding the nature of communication. And you think that has changed. You think more so now people want to tell you something. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, yeah, I definitely think that most times people would listen to you only to wait for their turn to speak because they, perhaps they think that they've got something interesting to add to the conversation. That's why I say from my side previously, that's where I sat. I was the guy going, okay, finish what you wanted to say so that I can, I can tell my memory or I can do uh, whatever I wanted to say. And that's changed a lot. As soon as you let people speak their mind, then not only do you get really interesting conversations out of it, the other person really enjoys it and, and you're all the better for it, I think. It, is there anyone you saying this reminds me of people that I know in my life that are really good at this? And I leave the conversation thinking, oh my God, what a great conversationalist. And you realize they just made me talk the whole time. Are there people like that in your life that you know that are just like, wow, what an interesting uh, person to talk to and they got a lot out of me? Yeah, it's, it's actually really interesting what I'm going to say. It's, I think a lot of people resonate with this actually, and it's almost an art in my opinion, but I think your parents generally, especially as you head into, you see what I mean is especially as soon as you head into being an adult, they don't generally want to talk to you about themselves. They just want to, they just want to hear about you and they really low key and really slyly sly in a good way get that out of you and you leave and you're like, wow, I just told them everything, which is, mm. it's a really wholesome feeling. Have you done the opposite? Have you gotten stuff out of them and their life, their fears, hopes, dreams? Yeah. So what I find quite interesting to, to talk about my parents to is their childhood because they were quite, I don't ever remember my parents fighting or anything like that. And as we all know, parents, parents do fight and things like that. So they were very secretive around certain things. We've never gotten drunk. We've, we've never had a drink too many, but as that relationship pivots into adulthood, I want to hear what did you, what did you guys get up to? Tell me like a crazy story where you got arrested or something like that. I just want to hear how their upbringing was as well. And some of the things I've got was like shocking, relatable and hilarious, which we're all the better for it, which was amazing. How old were your parents when they had you? 30. Okay. So not super young. No. So one, one would believe that settled down by then, but that's the thing, right? Is that there's always something that they were up to, which was really interesting to, to hear. They, they were still on, on the surface. They were, you always think like your parents have got everything planned out. Nothing can be unexpected to them. And. Again, as you reach adulthood, no one knows anything. We're all just winging it right now. And, and that's, that's an interesting pivot. But also for them to have this serious front, it was a very loving household and everything. But again, like it was all, everything's fine. Everything's great. And it was interesting to see that sometimes everything wasn't all great all the time. And there was a lot of adversity and a lot of struggles that my parents had to deal with that I was protected from in a great big way. And to actually hear that 
is very eye-opening because sometimes if, if I have a memory as a kid of like my dad being in a particularly bad mood and then my mom saying, oh, it's just, he's just stressed from work or whatever. Meanwhile, he was really going through something really terrible or whatever the case might be that he didn't want to reflect on us. I think I've, I've had brilliant parents, to be honest, but I do want to know those things now as an adult, especially the fun things. I know no one always likes to talk about doom and gloom when there were tough times or anything like that, but especially as an adult, I want to know as a kid, did you sneak out? Did you, what did you get up to? That, those yeah. are always super interesting conversations to have when I can get it out of them. Yeah, I agree on, uh, it's fun hearing stories from your parents. Stories are fun in general. I, I am also thinking about being a good listener, listening to what people have to say. Sometimes you come across just amazing storytellers. And I'm curious if you have anyone that you're just like, wow, what a great storyteller. The best storytellers I've come across have been in some other bar somewhere or some farm that you visit and the fire's crackling away in the background and you're just hearing this guy talk about some army story or something like that. Like my wife's dad has got mm -hmm. crazy things, crazy stories to tell about his time in, in the war and things like that, that was, wasn't all doom and gloom. Some of the guys got up to some really crazy things and just also the things he got up to, I think he's a really good storyteller and he's really engaging as well. Do you, is there a story you can tell that he's told you that you like in particular? Oh my goodness. <laughs> there are so many. I, not specific to, to Serena's dad, but I did once, it's quite a hectic story. I met a group of guys in the bar once that were, they were quite, quite a quiet bunch of people, but they, they were in the background the whole time. So they never got up to dance or whatever, and, and they would, they would get their drinks delivered to the table and everything like that. And eventually my liquid courage plucked up and my sudden, my introvert nature went out of the window and I walked up to them and I'm like, Hey, never seen you guys around. What's going on? Let's talk. And what ensued were, it was, it was insane. So what these guys did for a living is they would actually hunt poachers so when there were poachers for things like rhino horn and things like that which is a, an enormous issue within south africa and obviously the greater africa the farmers or game reserve keepers would call them in to to put it politely to rid them of these poachers and obviously the stories that that develop from that are sometimes funny sometimes sad sometimes gruesome but it was just so interesting that I live my life as a computer programmer. I live a very sheltered life, right? I, the worst thing that I'm concerned about is my eyes. Sometimes I saw at the end of the day, and these guys are out there fighting poachers. It's absolutely incredible the the sheer divide between our lifestyle that I was just completely captivated by the conversation. It was an absolutely phenomenal conversation. I think I walked out of that board. It must've been about six o'clock in the morning. So we spoke for four hours and I say, we, it was just this group of people that I just let go because it was fascinating. I had even, I had stopped drinking. I was totally sober by the time I left and it was, it stuck with me ever since. And I think I, I must've been 18 when, when I heard wow. that, which. And then you, sure. Sorry, say again? 
anti, and then you did become an anti-poacher. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then just for all of the American friends listening, the legal drinking age in South Africa is 18. So I just want to make that clear. Oh, that's the eye wink in the U.S. as well. Yeah. It makes me think often what I would do if there were computers. Like if I was alive before we had software, what would I be doing? Because you hear about the poaching and the anti-poaching. I mean, that's a career, quote unquote, that has been around for a very long time. I'm curious if you've ever thought about that. If it weren't software, what would you do? All the, all the time, weirdly enough. If I weren't going into software, I would have loved to go into marketing or kind of business analysis kind of environment. Because I find now the, the way that my career is going and the way that I want it to go is, is far more business slash product orientated. I find I get a lot of energy from doing that kind of thing. So when you and I, for instance, are discussing where the product is going, that's where I really get a lot of energy from. And that's why I think, I know you and I can talk for hours on end, which is awesome. And, and that's because that kind of talk energizes me. So I think I would have moved into some kind of business line, probably marketing. All right. Another existential question for you. What is something that you used to believe that you no longer do? Or that you've changed your mind on. Okay, good. Uh, I was going to say, can I just say Father Christmas and move on? <laughs> now we need uh, a better, better answer. Yeah, I thought as much. I think one of the things that, that I did firmly believe in is I was extremely fearful of failure. Mm. And I would avoid it like, like the plague. I wasn't, I wasn't the, the top scoring student at school, but I was, when I went to, to college, I got a 98% average. And that's when I was most fearful of failure. Cause I thought this is the final frontier. If I mess this up, I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to be able to provide for my family. I'm not going to be able to do anything. And since then I've failed a number of times, sometimes spectacularly, and sometimes in a minor fashion. And I think you do most of your learning through failure and who you are as a person also, it builds a lot of, it, it builds a lot of character within your personality and it also builds grit, which prevents future failure to stick it out, get it done and, and get it working. And I think those qualities that are birthed through failures, very good qualities to have within the software development world. Sometimes things are going to go wrong. Sometimes there are production bugs and sometimes there are days where you feel like everything is breaking, where you need to have that grit that you were taught from your failure to stick through it and get it to the place that it needs to be. So I think to frame it nicely, it would be the fear of failure that I had is hmm. different. I don't believe in a fear of failure anymore. That's a great answer. What is one of these spectacular failures? There are many. <laughs> That's a good thing. Yeah. I think in my professional career, imposter syndrome and the inverse of that have, have been, have been key to a few of those. There, there were times where as a junior developer many years ago, I would say, I know everything. No one can teach me a thing. I know every, everything and I'm going to fix this whole thing. So 
as a junior developer working for that, uh, company that I'm now suddenly not going to name, I took it upon myself as a junior dev in the company to rewire some of their database structures to what I thought was a really cool new service without thinking about migration scripts, current load, switch over potential downtime, nothing. That was a mis a mistake that probably cost the company in and around, I would say 700,000 rand, which is probably a, a good $50,000. So that was one side of things. And another side of things was when I was too, too late to pull the trigger on something. I felt that I had the skill set and I lacked confidence within my skill set. So it's a, I feel like it's a fine line that you have to walk to be able to actually reach those goals. You, you can't have, you can't have a big head, no matter how much you may know, but you also must have confidence within yourself enough to be able to execute on the ideas and those kinds of things that, that you have. And that is a very fine balance that took me a while to to learn. And I think that speaks quite nicely into the listening thing because people, sometimes the intrinsic nature of people is they love, people tend to love to let you know how smart they are. That I think is just human nature and myself included. I'm not trying to remove myself from that, but if you just listen to them as well, you, you're going to gain a lot out of it and potentially mitigate some of your future failure. Agreed with that. It is always better to ask questions than to tell somebody something. Even it's hard though. Sometimes you just want to <laughs> tell somebody something. Very true. Last question here. What gets you most excited every day and uh, not bottle related? Not the answer can't be I'm really excited about bottle. Really? I was totally going to set that up to be like, can I be that guy? <laughs> <laughs> what, um. No, you've taken my whole motivation away now. I've got nothing to live for. <laughs> Non-bottle related. Obviously, what gets me really excited is actually seeing my little family, right? To see, wake up and, and see my wife. And she's always in a super awesome mood, always the one that's feeding the positive energy. And I walk out of the room and she's got a, an espresso for me and then we just sit outside with the sun coming up and talk about whatever that whatever we want to. It's it's never labored. It's never trifle, if I can put it like that. It's always just sometimes too much and we end up sitting outside for an hour and a half. <laughs> and I'm going, oh no, I need to I need to go and follow my other passion. <laughs> and I really enjoy that. It's um, what time do you wake up? What's the sunrise? So we're usually up at around half past five and the sun should be coming up at around quarter past six, half past six recently in the middle of winter, in the middle of winter, that's more like half past seven. So it was a lot easier to hit the sunrise in the winter. True. I am always amazed on that because the latitude of South Africa, I don't know what it is, but it, I guess it's deceptively South. I was amazed. When I lived in Idaho, which is deceptively north, how fast the sun moves day to day in terms of the sunrise. We're talking three, four minutes a day. The sunrise will be different, which 
was mind blowing to me to think that the earth is moving that quickly around the sun, that the sunrise is shifting by minutes a day. But if you're that far in one direction or the other, I guess it makes sense. You've, you've got a wide swing from daylight to from top of summer to bottom of winter. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's exactly what happens in Cape Town. I don't mean just like that. You, you said Idaho, right? Yeah. What did your summer sunrise sunset look like? I, we were only there in the winter. We were basically there from winter solstice through spring solstice, a little past. My memory was the sun would not rise until after eight, like 8.15, 8.20 a.m. And it would set shortly after 4 p.m., 4.15, 4.30 in the dead of winter solstice. So a very narrow day. And the reason I'm anchored around that is uh, ski town. So the, the lifts would be open from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. And I was always shocked about in those few weeks, so close to the winter solstice, how the sun was barely rising in time and then barely setting in time. Whereas by the end of by spring solstice, where it's more a 12 hour day, a 12 hour night, the sun's up by seven. It's not set till 7 PM. It's shocking then how much daylight there is where the lifts are still closing at four, but now there's three more hours of daylight and you'd be standing there drinking a beer at the bottom of the mountain thinking, oh, I want to keep skiing. Why don't they yeah. keep the look? But I mean, that's when it really hits you like, wow, the sunset has really moved in a short amount of time in just three months. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. That also boggles my mind. I think it's obviously both the poles that would have basically six months of sunshine and, and six months of, of night. That's just crazy. And, and I suppose with that would come the longest sunrise and the longest sunset you've ever seen. It'd be a couple of days. <laughs> yeah. I've never been in that far in either direction. The farthest south I've been, and I wonder if you've been farther, is Dunedin, New Zealand. And it's like shockingly far south. And I think the sun set there at 11 p.m. when we were there in, in our winter there, summer. That's very interesting because when we were in the UK, I distinctly remember the sun setting at around quarter to 10 in the evening. Which was, yeah, I suppose it's the same extreme, right? Whether you're north or south, but yeah, the further south I've been is South Africa. I mean, even just looking at the map, in my mind, like Australia is farther south, but it's really not. You guys are pretty, pretty in line, horizontal to each other. Yeah. But that's just skewing everything. Do you know the, the measurement tool in Google maps? I don't. So what's really cool is you can right click on a location and say measure distance. And then, so if you click in, say Cape Town of South Africa and say oh, yeah. measure distance and you click on Sydney. Wow. I never knew this was a thing. Then you can see just how severe the curve of the earth is. So oh, in line God. is difficult to say. <laughs> yeah. Cause they have you basically getting really close to Antarctica. Really interesting. Yeah, that's, it's wild. We're so used to processing the map as flat. One of the, one of the really interesting sort of infographics I've seen is the true size of countries. And obviously everything around the equator is roughly the, the size that is represented on the map, but places like Russia are far smaller 
than you would anticipate due to their location being norther or more of on a on the curved part of the world, if that makes sense. It is, yeah. Greenland, you always hear, looks so big on a flat map. Yeah, and it's actually not nearly that size. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That boggles my mind. Very cool. I'm going to go crazy because I love looking at flight paths and stuff. And so this is a cool tool. I never. Yeah, noticed. it is. That's where I found it obvious when I was looking at with. Uh, I'm not sure if it's an international service, but we've got Flight Radar 24. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there we go. <laughs> Glad I'm not the only one. Do you click on the plane, see where they're going? Exactly. And then you see some yeah. like strange holding patterns for test flights and stuff. And mm -hmm. ah, super cool. My favorite thing to do is if I'm sitting outside and I see it go past, <laughs> seeing where they're going. <laughs> I, I do the same thing. It's cool. I, I, we were sitting outside the other day on a patio and looked up, there's a plane. I think it's like, look on the map, click on it. Oh, that came from Seoul. It's just really cool to me. Yeah. That's yeah. And you can be like, oh, that's a Cessna or a Boeing or a whatever passenger jet right. or like a really rich guy. Cool. I think uh, this was a really fun conversation. So the first internal bottle podcast in the books, this will be really fun to listen to. Any other cool. wise words on departure here? No, I, I dug deep for a moment there and I'm just, I'm all philosophized out. <laughs> perfect just how just what we wanted uh, all right i'll have it have a great rest of the day and um i'm looking forward to re-listening to this awesome thank you very much will see ya cool bye